Father in heaven, we do thank you for fellowship. We thank you that we have partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby once we may have been enemies or at the very best strangers and acquaintances, but now we are family members. We are brothers and sisters and we share one another's burdens and blessings and joys and sadnesses because the cross has brought us near. The cross has made us family. The cross has made us one. And for that, Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you have brought us into your family. Blessed be your name. Glory be to Jesus Christ. And Father, we want to pray for our sisters, Lauren, Haynes and Elizabeth Brown as they are on their mission this summer and we would ask that you would bless them with fullness of the Holy Spirit and courage with the gospel. We plead that you would give Lauren courage and wisdom as she ministers at camp through FCA all week this week. That you would give her a a courage and a boldness that stands for Jesus and speaks the message of Christ. We pray for Elizabeth to have the same, and we ask that you give her experiences through this week that she will take with her for a lifetime of gospel ministry. And Father, we pray for our missionaries, Scott and Aaron Kemp, their children. We pray for their safety. We pray for your provision of them. We pray that you will bless their efforts to give the gospel to those men and women and boys and girls in South Africa. We pray for their partners, that they will be a unified team of gospel ambassadors in that land, that you may raise up children and women and men who love the Lord Jesus Christ through the ministry of these missionaries. Father, we pray for husbands and wives in this congregation right now. We pray for men to love their wives as Christ has loved the church. We pray for wives to love their husbands and to honor them as Christ is to honor the church. We pray for parents. Father, we know that we have all kinds of challenges as parents, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and courage and love to care for our children the way that you care for us. We pray for children to respond to the revelation of your word through faith in Jesus, repentance of sin. We pray that they will turn away from their sins and turn to Christ and that they may know a newfound joy and a newfound life and a newfound direction for their life. Father, we pray that you would raise up new people in this body as they cross over from death to life. Father, we pray for workers in this body who will go out this week and serve and toil at a job. We pray that you will help them to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, giving an example of what it means to work for the glory of God. Father, we pray for our preachers and teachers and servants in this church, some who will be going to the Calhoun County Jail this week and who will be explaining the Scriptures, some who will be preaching the Word to inmates, some who will be discipling individuals toward what it means to love Jesus. And Father, we just pray that you would grant them fullness of your spirit, clarity of teaching and preaching, clarity of accountability, that you might grow a people in this county who love you, who live for you, 
who deny themselves and take up the cross and follow after Jesus. Father, we pray for our sister churches at this very moment. There are churches like Grace Fellowship and the Living Church and Grace, uh, Grace Bible Church and Christian Fellowship and First Baptist and Iron City and many others where the gospel is going forward. And we just pray, Lord, that it will not return void, that you would save and sanctify people in this county for the glory of your name. And Father, right here in this building, we pray that not only will you illuminate your word so that every man and woman and boy and girl can, can see it, but we pray that we will love it, that we will embrace it, and that we will be like Jesus who said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Father, would you help us to absorb your word right now in such a way that we eat it like a feast and we use it as the fuel for us to go and live our lives. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have not already turned there, I encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Last week we started our series called He Is. He Is. And every week we'll be doing a study of the person of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And we looked at the prologue last week, verses 1 through 18. And in that prologue, what we said essentially John is saying is that the eternal Son of God who is responsible for creating and sustaining the universe has broken into human history and become a man. And why has He become a man? To reveal the glory and grace of God that we may believe in Him and live for Him. That's what we said is the essential message of the prologue of the Gospel of John. And today we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 34. And I want to make a statement before we read these verses. I want to give a little background before we just read these verses and understand them. And the first statement I want to make, church, is that God is not silent. He's not silent. He, he's always provided a voice so His people can hear Him. That's very important. There are people in the world who believe that God is this divine being who created everything, is kind of wound it up like a clock or like a watch, and He just watches it go. And it just stands at a distance and says, Oh, I, I hope things work out well. But God is not like that. God is intricately involved in human life and in human existence. And not only is He involved, He speaks into it. He spoke to Adam and Eve before they fell, and then He came and spoke to Adam and Eve after they fell. What grace is that? He spoke to Abraham and He says, I'm going to make of you, Abraham, a people, a great and mighty people, and they will be as many as the sand uh, on the seashore. And I'm going to provide for you a son. And he spoke these things to Abraham, and he spoke messages to Abraham, whether it be directly to himself or through an angel, but then he spoke through Moses. 
Can you remember when he spoke to Moses at, at the foot of Mount Horeb? And he says, I want you to go and lead my people out of bondage and out of slavery, and, and I want you to take them into the promised land. He spoke to Moses, and then ultimately, he spoke in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and if you can remember, he spoke to Moses and he says, I'm going to provide a prophet just like you, and he's going to be a leader like you, and he's going to lead, and he's going to preach, and he's going to proclaim just like you have Moses, and Moses proclaimed that to the people of Israel. And God spoke to, to men like Joshua. He says, now it's time for you to enter the promised land. Moses is dead. You go in. Don't look to the right or to, to the left, but I want you to go in and seize every place that your foot treads because I'm giving it to you to possess. God spoke directly to men like Joshua. And he spoke to prophets. He spoke to men like Isaiah. If you can remember, he revealed his glory to Isaiah. And then he says, I've got this message, and I want you to go speak this message to my people. And that's precisely what Isaiah did. And, and if you can remember at one point in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah said, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. And that's the thing, at that point, God had revealed this to Isaiah, and Isaiah is saying, I'm going to lead you out of Babylonian captivity if you repent of your sins, and I'm going to make a way for you to be restored and to be renewed and to enjoy all of this salvation, this deliverance that God is going to provide. He spoke to men like Elijah. And Elijah was a unique character who, who wore a unique clothes, animal's hair, leather belt. He was a rough tough man and he would go throughout the wilderness and he would proclaim the righteousness of God as God would reveal it to him and he would call down the sins of people like King Ahab who married Jezebel who was a daughter of a worshiper of Baal and he would call down sin but God was providing along the way his voice of repentance, his voice of, of come to me, repent of your sins and worship before me the one true God. And he spoke to even prophets like Malachi. You remember in Malachi, it's the very last book in the Old Testament. And the very last words of the very last book in the Old Testament, listen to what God spoke. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And after God's voice was spoken to Malachi and Malachi spoke that and wrote it down, do you know what happened? 400 years of silence. 400 years of verbal, audible silence. Oh, Israel still had the Word of God. They still had the voice of God through what? The Scriptures. But at this point, they're accustomed to hearing audible voices. They're accustomed to angels coming down. They're accustomed to prophets speaking forth the direct, audible revelation of Almighty God. And now... Decade builds upon decade and century upon century such that now no voice from God has been heard. And then 
a priest who is old by the name of Zechariah has a responsibility to go into the holy place and to offer incense in the holy place as an act of worship of the people of God. He's righteous, and his wife Elizabeth is righteous and faithful. And he goes in on that day to offer up worship to God and to offer these incenses for the people of God. And the Lord speaks. And what does he say? I'm going to give you a son. And Zechariah's like, we're old. We're very old. He says, I'm going to give you a son. And he is going to be in the spirit of Elijah. And he is going to proclaim the word of God. And he is going to make straight the path for the Messiah. And what happens? Elizabeth conceives and John is born. And John becomes a young man and he goes out into the wilderness and in the spirit and in the likeness of Elijah, he wears a clothes of camel hair and a leather belt and he eats locusts and honey for his diet. I heard R.C. Sproul say this week, I don't know what all problems that John the Baptist had in his life, but obesity was not one of them. <laughs> with R.C. Sproul's humor, he said, he said you know, you'd how creative could he get with that diet? He said, I can just see him making s'mores. He would take, uh, take the locust and put the honey over the locust and roast it over the fire and eat it as soon as it came out. He said... But this is John the Baptist. And what is John the Baptist doing? He's doing two things. He's preaching and he's baptizing. Now he's preaching a message of repentance. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's telling soldiers that they should not abuse their power as soldiers to lord it over the citizens. And he's telling citizens that they should turn from their sin of idolatry and worship the true God. And he's telling leaders and hypocrites that they need to worship God for who God is. And he's even telling tax collectors not to take any more money than they ought to take in taxes because this is the righteousness of God. And so turn to His righteousness and turn away from your sins. And if you want to be cleansed of your sins, he says, I will baptize you. And this baptism is a baptism of repentance to cleanse them from their sins. Now it needs to be very clear at this point, church, that there was already a baptism in place in Israel. During that 400 year gap, Jews started baptizing non-Jews. Why did they do that? As an, as an act of a ritual cleansing to get these unclean, non-Jew, Gentile people into the Jewish people so that they could worship God. Now, interestingly, they never baptized Jews. They only baptized Gentiles. And not only that, they didn't do the baptism. The priests and Levites oversaw it. But any Gentile who wanted to become a Jewish worshiper would go in the water themselves and administer the baptism by themselves. 
And so John the Baptist is out here in the wilderness by the River Jordan preaching repentance of sin, and he's not baptizing Gentiles, he's baptizing Jews. And this is an offense and affront to all Jews. Why? Because Jews are saying, we're in the family of God. We know God. We worship God. We're not unclean. We're clean. What are you doing? And on top of that, they're afraid that if he is in fact preaching the kingdom of God, and if he does in fact somehow that either thinks he's the Messiah or he is about to usher in the kingdom of God, then Rome might get upset, and if they come get upset, then they're going to come and oppress us and destroy us, and they might shut us all down. We better go check this guy out. Does that set the context enough for you guys? All right, good. Well, then let's look at the passage. And this is the testimony of John. Verse 19, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Church, I want to cut to the chase and tell you what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand for ourselves in this passage. And it is this, is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who He is. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is what He wants us to do. He wants to embrace Him with a heart of humility and courageously preach Him with a bold voice. That's what He wants us to do. 
I'll say it again clearly as I've written it. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and so embrace Him with a humble heart and preach Him with a courageous voice. Embrace Him with a humble heart and preach Him with a courageous voice. Embrace Him with a humble heart and preach Him with a courageous voice. That's what God is calling us to do. The fact is, is that John the Baptist was a unique man in a unique time among a unique people who had a unique message. That is a fact. There is no doubt about it. He was unique. His job was to pave the way for the revelation of the Lamb of God through preaching and baptizing people. But this is the reality too, is that you and I are unique people in a unique time among a unique community. And it is our same job to proclaim the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we are to do so with humble hearts and a courageous voice that we might glorify and magnify the Lamb of God. That's what God's calling us to. That's what everyone... Adam, that's what God's calling you to, and He's calling me to the very same thing. All of us are to embrace the Lord with a humble heart and preach Him with a courageous voice. And I want you to see that as we just walk our way through these verses. And so if you think of it in terms of, of that big idea and what God is calling you to, what we see is in verses 19 through 28, I want you to see the beauty of a humble heart. And then in 29 through 34, I want you to see the boldness of a courageous voice. First, the beauty of a humble heart that we see in John the Baptist. Let's look just at the text and we'll walk through it. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Well, priests and Levites are those emissaries of the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin who are they're proficient. They are professional ritual overseers is who the priests and Levites are. They are professional ritual overseers. And they're getting this word about John. They said he is performing these rituals not in the temple. Not even in a synagogue, but out in the wilderness, in the desert, by the Jordan. You guys have to go check this out. And so they have a question. And that question is directed from the Sanhedrin to, through the Levites and the priests and said, well, John, this is the deal. We just need to know, who are you? Who are you? Look at verse 20. John the Apostle, who's writing this account, could have said, John the Baptist replied, John the Baptist said. Instead, he says, he confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed. I am not the Christ. We have to ask ourselves the question, why would John the Apostle be so deliberate in this confession? First of all, he's painting this thing like it's a courtroom. He's, he's painting it like there, there, there is a courtroom drama about to unfold and that John the Baptist is on trial. And so he uses courtroom type of language, confession, denial, and all of that. He also uses the word testimony right there. Not only that, though, he is wanting to make clear that John the Baptist, even though he's popular, even though people are flocking out to the wilderness to him, even though he is becoming kind of famous in and among the people who are following him and listening to him and being baptized to him, he is wanting to make it very clear that all of this popularity did not go to John the Baptist's head. 
Listen, there are people in and around the Jerusalem area for the last hundred years or so during this time who have said, I'm the Christ, or I'm paving the way for the Christ. Come listen to me. I'm going to usher in the kingdom. There are all these people who are making these declarations, and John the Apostle wants to make everybody clear that John the Baptist was not making that kind of uh, audacious claim. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Deliverer. And so, verse 21, they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And, and he said, I am not. Now, for those of you who are students of the Bible, you've got a little bit of a conflict going on in your mind and in your heart because when the disciples were later talking uh, to Jesus about John the Baptist and, and, and Jesus starts talking about him, Jesus ultimately confesses that John the Baptist was who? Elijah. And so we have to question, okay then, is John the Baptist Elijah or is he not Elijah? If we answer, if we just ask it like this, is John the Baptist Elijah? The answer is no and yes. Sounds like a politician, doesn't it? It's no and yes. No, John the Baptist was not physically Elijah. Elijah had been taken up He's one of two men in all of Scripture who did not die. He had been taken up from the earth into heaven, and the people of Israel were waiting for Elijah to come back down from heaven in a blaze of glory in a chariot of fire, and they could not wait for that. And so they were basically asking, are you the reincarnation of Elijah? And John the Baptist says, no, I am not the reincarnation of Elijah. Physically, I am not Elijah. But... The answer is yes, he's Elijah, in the sense that spiritually and prophetically he fulfills the promise that was made about Elijah. And so Jesus says, yes, he is Elijah, but he fulfills exactly what has been prophesied. The answer is no. Physically, he's not. Spiritually, prophetically, yes, he is. But John, he's humble. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. And then so they say, well, are you the prophet, the one that was promised in Deuteronomy 18? And for you to understand the importance of them asking this question and the hope that they might have in asking this question is that the Jews really looked up to Moses. And they loved Moses because Moses was the mediator not only of the Old Testament, but he was also the deliverer, the physical deliverer of the people of Israel out of bondage into deliverance and freedom. And so they looked at Moses with this great admiration and they're looking for somebody to deliver them out of the kind of the confinement that they currently have underneath the Roman Empire. And so they're like, oh, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? And he says, no, I'm not the prophet either. I'm not the one that's been promised in Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18. And so they said, who are you? We've got to give an answer. Verse 23, they say, we've got to give an answer. And he says... I am the voice. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I told you what Isaiah meant when he said it in its immediate context and in its immediate fulfillment. But through my study this week, I'm pretty sure that every single gospel 
records John the Baptist saying that he is the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And I want you to know, John the Baptist's primary role was this right here. It was the knowledge that the king was coming. And so he comes in before the king. And just like I told you guys a week ago, when our soldiers were about to go conquer another land, servants would go ahead of those soldiers and they would clear out the path. They would knock down every tree. They would roll away the stones. They would even cut out mountains, parts of mountains, so that the army could pass through unimpeded to go conquer another land. What John the Baptist is saying is, I am here to knock down every tree, to roll away every stone, to cut through every mountain, so that when the king comes, he has a clear path to reign as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's John the Baptist's primary role. I'm here to go out in front of him to usher him in. And he said, I'm the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. And so they, they, they were from the Pharisees, and so they said, why? Why are you baptizing? Like, if you're not you're Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, and in verse 26 he says, I baptize with water. I baptize with water. This is the thing. I'm not, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is coming into these people and filling them. I'm not saying that something supernatural is happening when I put them in the water. In the spirit of Psalm 51 2, in the, in the spirit of, of uh, Ezekiel 36, the scriptures say that, that if you want to repent of your sin, then you need to be renewed. You need to be cleansed with water. So I'm using water symbolically. To, to help people understand that they are now walking in repentance. He says, but, but, look down at the text, church, but among you stands one you don't know, he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now, John the Baptist, make no mistake, was a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. And you should know that in the first century, when a person was a disciple of a rabbi, was a disciple of a teacher, that disciple put himself under the authority of that teacher, and whatever the teacher told him to do, he had to do. You know, that's actually borne out when Jesus instructed some of his disciples to go into town and to uh, find a, a room and to prepare it and to go get a donkey. I mean, if you were a disciple of somebody, you did whatever he told them. It didn't matter what it was. But there was one rule that a disciple would not stoop so low as to touch his rabbi's feet and unloose the sandals and the shoes that the rabbi wore because that would even be beneath the disciple. And John the Baptist is saying, catch this, I'm not just a disciple. I'm not just a servant. I am so low. I'm so far underneath the glory and the beauty and the magnificence of this one who is standing among you that it would be an honor and a privilege to be able to untie his sandal. But I can't have that honor because he's so high and I'm so low. Church, that's the beauty of humility. Humility is not just 
oh, well, I'm not that great, and I'm not, I'm not all that. I just want to kind of stick to myself and not say a lot, and I just want to be my own person and do my own thing and not, not tell people that I'm great and not brag and not get on Facebook and, and brag about this or boast about this and you know show people that I have this. Say, I'm a humble person. Listen, that, that's not what humility is in essence. Humility is looking at yourself in light of who Jesus Christ is. And seeing that He is the holy Lamb of God, that He is supreme and set apart, that He is sanctified as it were, that is, He is separate from us, and when I put my eyes on Him and understand His character and the great and wonderful attributes of who He is, I don't just pale in comparison, I'm not even in comparison of Him. I don't there is no me. I, I, I'm, I'm less than a servant. That's what humility is. And that's how John saw himself in light of Jesus. That's why we call it the beauty of a humble heart. And so, the Scripture says here in verse 28 that this happened in Bethany. Now, this is not the Bethany that's not right beside Jerusalem. This is an area that was called Bethanae, which was uh, further north and it was east of the Jordan. And that's where these things happened. And then it transitions. And what we're looking at is the boldness of a courageous voice in verse 29 and following. And it says, the next day, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, there is a sense in which Reading that verse, reading that statement is like getting to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. It's like, wow, so much packed into that one statement. He's saying, look, behold, take notice. This is who I was talking about. I don't have the right or the privilege or the honor to even bend down and touch His feet or unloose His sandal because He is that holy. He is that great. He is that glorious. This is who I was talking about. And His identity is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Notice the definite article. He's not a lamb. He's not any lamb. He's not some old lamb. Who is He? The Lamb. The one Lamb. And whose Lamb is He? God's Lamb. This is God's Lamb. This is the Lamb that God has provided. This is God's chosen Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. What in the world are you talking about? They would be thinking, what do you mean? And I have to confess at this point... I am I'm certain that John the Baptist did not understand the fullness of what he just said. Because if you can remember, later on in his life, when he is arrested by Herod, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Christ? Are you really the one who... I'm a little confused here, basically, John is saying. And so he makes a grandiose statement that is true as true can be, but he himself doesn't even understand it. But now we look with gospel lenses and we look with New Testament eyes and we can see what it means. Listen, church, and I want to tell you this right now. I said at the beginning that God is not silent, that he's always had a voice so that people could hear him. I also want to tell you right now 
that God has always provided a lamb so that people could know him. Think about it for a moment. Y'all meditate with me here. This is so rich. In Genesis chapter 22, old Abraham and his wife Sarah had finally had a child at the age of 190. He was 100, she was 90. And then Abraham has his son Isaac. And all of a sudden, the Lord speaks to Abraham. He says, I want you to take your son Isaac and offer him up to me on an altar in the area of Moriah. And immediately, Abraham cuts down a tree. He chops wood. He takes two of his servants. He puts the wood and all the instruments up on the donkeys. And they go into a journey, and he waits for three days. And in the midst of waiting, the Lord says, it's time. And so he takes up and he puts the wood down. He sets Isaac on the altar. Now in his mind, Abraham is thinking, well, this is really weird because God had promised to me that he was going to make me a great nation. And he finally has given me this son that he had promised. And if I kill him, well, oh, well. But he said to the servants before they went up, what did he say? He said, we'll come back after we're done worshiping. So we know from the writer of Hebrews that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he would killed him. Nevertheless, as he's offering up his son and he's about to strike him with the knife, The Lord speaks, and he hears a noise. Abraham does, and he looks behind him. And church, what is behind Abraham at that moment? A ram, which is a male lamb. And God says, offer up the lamb instead of your son. It's some years after that when Moses has been called to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt. And God, via the tenth plague to the people of Egypt, is going to kill every firstborn person in every home in Egypt. And God reveals himself to Moses and says, every family, every household is to take a lamb and is to cut open the lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorpost of the house. And when the angel of the Lord flies over and sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he will pass over that house and not strike down the firstborn. And then, in Isaiah chapter 53, the Lord is prophesying about the Savior, the the servant who is to come. And he says that he is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He is like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his voice. He opened not his mouth. Church, I want you to know that this idea that Jesus is the lamb of God is not just out of nowhere idea. That John just makes this statement and says, oh, he's a lamb. Look at this lamb right here. No, he's basing it on the revelation of God from Genesis all the way through the New Testament. And he's saying, this is not a lamb. This is not merely a Passover lamb. This is not a promised lamb. This is not a ram caught in a thicket. But this is the perfect, holy, substitutionary lamb that will take away all sins for eternity and will keep people out of destruction and into eternal life because he He possesses the character of God and the attributes of God, and yet He's a man so that He is just like us. He is the perfect Lamb, the Lamb of God. Behold Him and give your life to Him.
And so behold the Lamb of God. Let's make one other observation in 29. He says, who takes away the sin of the world. Not merely the sin of the Jews. Not merely the sin of the Gentiles who have now become Jews through their baptism. And not just through Samaritans because they have some relational connections to the Jews, but the sin of the world. And not just people who are good. As a matter of fact, not people who are good, but robbers and murderers and thieves and people who cheat for a living, tax collectors and and anybody in between. But listen to me, church. And kids, I want you to look at me. Children, I want you to look at me. When he says that Jesus takes away the sin of the world, he means that he even takes away your sins. And you don't need to think, I don't really have that many sins because I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't, I haven't um, deceived anybody on a stand or lied. I haven't even cheated on a test yet. You need to understand that your heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately wicked. And if your heart stays in the condition that it is currently in, you will be judged by God. And that will be forever because you need a lamb every bit as much as I need a lamb. And you need to give your heart and your life to this lamb so that you can be made new. You can do that. You can trust in Him if you give your life to Him and turn your life over to Him, children. And so He takes away the sin of the world, anyone who comes to Him in faith. All right, church, let's let's fast forward this and walk through the rest. He says... This is the one I was saying. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I didn't know him myself, but for this person I came baptizing in water that he might be revealed to Israel. And this is where John bears witness about the baptism. John the Baptist bears witness about the baptism that he had already given to Jesus in a previous day. And he says, in that baptism, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. And John the Baptist is making a testimony about Jesus that was different from every testimony of every prophet. The Spirit would come upon the prophets and then the Spirit would come off the prophets once their ministry was done, once their prophetic element of their life was done. But here, John the Baptist is saying the Spirit is staying on him. He's remaining on him. This this is something different. This is something powerful. This is something permanent. This, This Lamb of God has the Spirit of God. And he says, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And church, this is the thing, is that John's baptism was merely with water. But when Jesus comes to you and offers himself to you as the Lamb of God, he not only says, I'm going to convert you, he says, I'm going to give you my spirit. And my spirit is going to dwell in your life and in your heart. And he's going to dominate you and he's going to fill you so that you have a new life, a new direction, a new power, a new aim, a new desire, a new life. That's what you get when you get Jesus. It's not mere water. It's the Spirit of God that indwelt Jesus Himself. And so John says, I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God or the Chosen One of God. Church, I would love for you to just bow right now. I want you to meditate 
on John the Baptist's demonstration of humility and courage. I first want you to think about the kind of humility that it would take to have people from all over flocking to hear you speak, to hear you preach. People are ooing and awing at the power, the profundity of which you speak when you open your mouth. And yet, time after time, John the Baptist says, it's not me. It's not about me. It's not for me. I'm not the center. All I am is the voice that is paving the way for the one who is. Namely, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Think about the kind of humility that it would take as he's being bombarded with attention and fame. And then... I want you to think about the courage that it would take when the supreme leaders of your religion come from the temple with complete religious authority and they put you in the box and they say, tell us about yourself, tell us about what you're doing, tell us about what you stand for, and John the Baptist doesn't back down, and he declares the glory, the love, the greatness, the passion of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and he's willing to take whatever circumstances comes his way because of that declaration. Think of the boldness that that must have taken. The courage that it must have taken standing in front of these authoritative leaders. And now, I want to ask you to pray right now to God to give you a humble heart and a courageous voice that in the spirit of John the Baptist, you will look to the Lamb of God and you will preach the Lamb of God to your own generation because He's the only Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to pray. Look up at me as... I just want to tell you this before I step down. Yesterday... I'm studying at Starbucks, as I do every Saturday afternoon. And I've been there for probably a couple hours. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting over there in the corner, in their only comfortable seats that they have. And I'm sitting in the corner doing my thing. And this guy walks up to me, probably 23, 4 years old, 6 foot tall, maybe 170 pounds. And he said, sir, do you mind if I speak with you for a moment? I said, sure. He said, well, I feel like the Lord has wanted me to tell you something. He said, I feel like the Lord is telling me that he's going to bless you and that you don't need to stop in your efforts to serve God and that he is going to bring people to himself 
through your labors. He says, does the word coach mean anything to you? Well, you know, some of you probably don't know, I just finished a book, a Bible study book for coaches. Finished it on Thursday night. I said, yeah, it means a little bit to me. <laughs> he said, I, I just, I want to I tell you that you need to stick with it because God is going to bring people into his kingdom. And he said, can I pray with you? And I stood up and right there in Starbucks, he held my hand and he prayed for me and asked the God to bless me through Jesus Christ for the kingdom of God. I've never met that man before. He, he prayed for me, put his hand on my shoulder, and he walked out the door and left. That happened. Now, this is the thing. I don't have any idea what his theology is. I have no idea if, if he and I would line up in understanding what the revelation of God is, but this is what I know. That man was courageous. That man was bold. Here I am in my 40s. I was a lot bigger than him. I was busy. And he interrupts my thing, my life, my studies, to speak to me about the things of God. I was ministered to as much by that as I was by the words that he used. Church, I would just say, God is calling us to be the John the Baptists of our generation that we may declare the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let us be humble and courageous and let us have a humble heart and a bold voice.